Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And for the next four episodes, in celebration of Open Access Week, the Knowledge Futures Group, a new joint initiative of the MIT Press and the MIT Media Lab, is sponsoring four special episodes on open access at the MIT Press. In this episode, I'll be speaking with S.J. Klein and Jess Polka about the open access programs and platforms that are being developed to answer the need for open science tools in publication. Sam Klein is a member of the MIT Press, MIT Media Lab's Knowledge Futures Group, and a member of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Jess Polka is the Executive Director of Accelerating Science and Publication in Biology, or ASAP Bio as it is also known, which is a scientist-driven initiative to promote innovation and transparency in life sciences communication. Stay tuned after the interview for more information about the show. Sam Klein and Jessica Polka, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks for having us. Now, open access is an increasingly important part of academic publishing, particularly in the world of journals, but it seems to be that the scientific disciplines are embracing it faster than humanities. Could you talk about why that might be? I think science has to deal with large-scale collaborations to solve some of their problems, or they've hit some walls where it's, it's clear that understanding gravitational waves or understanding genetics will take directly linking the works of thousands of people. So there's a sense there's a sense of urgency and there's a sense of granular connection across labs that makes it easy to see why not being open is a direct barrier. Jessica, you work on a project dealing with open science and biology. Is it is it the same issues for you there? Yeah, I mean, I think that in the life sciences in particular, there are really strong funder mandates uh, for open access, especially from the NIH here in the United States. Um, I think that compliance with those funder mandates um, is definitely varied based upon um, how rigorous the funders are in in maintaining uh, and and checking up on whether their grantees have actually deposited their works uh, as required. Um, I think you know in in the life sciences uh, there's just now this amazing renaissance of the concept of preprinting. Um, which first appeared in the 1960s um, and has been much more popular in physics um, and uh, and mathematics and computer science for the past uh, quarter century. But yeah, while certainly we have a lot of, of um, a relatively high fraction of manuscripts being published uh, open access, uh, we are just becoming familiar with preprints, whereas that has been much more common in other fields. So what are preprints? Uh, does it have something to do with the peer review that most scientific papers have to go through? Basically, preprints are commonly understood to be manuscripts prior to the completion of journal-organized peer review. So these are early versions of typically the same papers that you would find in a, in a journal, but prior to the completion of the peer review process. Oftentimes, people will uh, post a preprint at the same time that they submit uh, their manuscript. Um, but that said, I think preprints are also a fantastic venue for communicating results that might never make it into a journal for one reason or another. For example, negative results or um, results that uh, don't necessarily uh, take the full shape of a complete scientific paper. It, it also often covers people publishing drafts of their work as they're, as they're iterating on them. A lot of preprint servers adopt the idea that you can publish many drafts as you're going through them. So since their filter is just a spam filter, you don't have to have something that you think will pass um, the, 
the notability criterion of some reviewers before you can share it with other people. So it's a bridge between the abstracts people publish at conferences and finished papers. I'm assuming the people in the scientific community, as you said, are aware of preprints, but when they give preprints open access, are there concerns that if they are, uh, am I giving away any of my copyrights, you know, my intellectual property rights, putting in a preprint? I know because I've done some research in OA that that's not necessarily the case, but is there still an educational thing that needs to go on with scientists to help them understand that that might not be an issue? Uh, there's no preprint server that I'm currently aware of that requires authors to transfer copyright to the preprint server. Instead, preprint servers offer a variety of different licenses uh, so that authors can release their work and uh, give permission for others to reuse it, ranging from um, an all rights reserved uh condition under which the authors are just granting the preprint server permission basically to display the manuscript um, all the way to the CC0 uh, public domain waiver. Um, and so uh, uh, we at ASAP Bio um, have released in collaboration with Creative Commons and PLOS a resource on licensing and preprints um, that can be found on our website. And effectively, I think you're right, there is a large misconception about um, how restrictive journals are. Um, you know, most uh, journals do not have policies that restrict the dissemination of preprints in, in the way you're describing. Uh, I've learned over time that there are definitely some economic issues, and there's barriers to access some of the scientific information through journals simply because the cost of the journals for some libraries can be just exorbitant. Is open science, I guess, bringing the cost down? That's absolutely what it's doing. And it, it, it's putting pressure on some of the intermediaries that are currently making bank out of, out of being gatekeepers. It's driving the cost of access to their works down too. It's forcing them to find other ways to make a business. Uh, we talked earlier before this interview about one of the things that you both wanted to talk about. One of the words that came up is reputation. And I know that scientists, and particularly scientists that are working in the academy, of course, all other scientists, do want to uh, gain some level of prestige in their commu scientific community. And I was wondering, how does open access affect that? Because when you think about the toll-based journals that are have been around for years, obviously a lot of them have that kind of, I want to say, patina of respect or prestige. Uh, can open access journals compete with that? On a fundamental level, the, the business model of publishing or the access of publishing um, is, is not does not need to be connected or coupled to the prestige or selectivity. And I mean, I would argue that we may need to rethink how we define uh, uh, prestige in uh, the sciences and scholarship more generally. Um, but that said, I think there's some fantastic examples of journals that are open access, but also highly respected. The one that pops to mind um, in life sciences is eLife, um, which was launched um, several years ago by a group of funders um, who, um, you know, and the result is this journal that is pushing technological boundaries and also, I think, um, pushing back on this, this <laughs> uh, idea of open access. Um, as as being of lower quality. So I think eLife has really shown us that those things are not equivalent. I'll add that there was a time when it seemed like a nice shortcut to allow a journal that, that built up prestige to serve as a filter and for people to trust that the journal's prestige meant the things they published were very reputable. Uh, that's breaking down now. They're not able to, to keep up with the volume of new material that's coming out. Peer review practices are becoming more varied. There have been some recent hoaxes where 
journals that people expected were pretty good pass through papers that were clearly bad. So I think we're going to switch towards having reputation tied to the work itself and to the authors more than to the journal. Now, this is an MIT Press podcast, and MIT Press, in another show, we talking to people within the press about uh, how they're viewing open access to the future. But I imagine that an institution like MIT, which is such an important player in worldwide scientific scholarship, I'd imagine that the press's open access and open science initiatives might play an outsized role in how open science develops. Uh, could you talk about, you, I guess, what you see MIT Press doing in open access and how their examples might be shaping how open access and open science might be working in the future? I certainly think MIT Press has been um, uh, among pioneers in uh, releasing open access books, um, which, you know, I know we're talking mostly about journal articles here, but I think uh, extending that uh, this model into into books um, is something that is going to affect many different realms of, of scholarship. So certainly, um, I think the devotion to open access is really impressive and important. Yeah. And, and I, MIT Press has been increasingly encouraging their journals and now some of their monograph authors to publish open access and making it as, as uh, cost effective as possible. We've seen much faster growth of the open access journals than, than in many other sectors. Uh, and that's pretty delightful. We've, we've been publishing on PubPub some journals that people are happy to have both be open access and be openly commented on by their readers. And there's been quite an interest among authors in doing this. And I think authors who want to experiment with new things feel much more comfortable doing it when it's with an established press. Now, PubPub, that's the open publishing platform that was developed by the MIT Media Lab. And I think that's also part of the Knowledge Futures group of the press and the Media Lab working together for projects. Yes, that's right. And it started with some journal, with more journal-like publications, but now it also includes a number of books and even some conference proceedings. Now, both of you are involved with open science initiatives. Sam, you work with The Underlay, and Jessica, you work with ASAP Bio. I'm going to ask each one of you individually to talk about what these projects are and how they're related to open science. Sam, let's start with you. What is The Underlay? The Underlay is a protocol for dealing with distributed knowledge graphs and a set of tools for making them accessible to machines so that the knowledge of the world is machine-readable and we can do new things with it. We're using it primarily to align existing knowledge graphs, like the collections of metadata about scholarly articles and about patents and prior art. ASAP Bio is an organization um, initially founded by biologists um, that seeks to promote innovation and transparency in life science communication. So we do this by promoting the productive use of preprints uh, and also uh, publishing the content of peer review and other types of innovations in peer review. And, um, you know, we, we do this by convening meetings, uh, by increasing awareness, by building communities of researchers who are interested in sharing knowledge, uh, and uh, by starting conversations about how we can uh, kind of foster best practices around these emerging areas. The idea of open access and open science and the free sharing information and of course, sounds wonderful. But are there limits or should everything be free? I think that there are definitely some areas where um, the need for the, f the free sharing of knowledge needs to intersect with uh, the privacy of um, certain groups of people. For example, whether the knowledge that we're talking about is private patient data or um, information about um, cultural groups that may not want um, certain information shared publicly. 
um, that may want their preferences respected. Um, I think that there has to be sensitivity, especially when dealing with human subjects, um, of of how the need for privacy intersects with um, the the desire to grow knowledge. So uh, certainly I think um, that is an area that needs a lot of attention. I think there's a level of abstraction at which information about our shared worlds is fundamentally free. And if we find that we're interacting with it in a way where someone claims that they're controlling our access to it, we've just, we've made a mistake. We've made a, we made a context, a, a framing level mistake. If we're talking about observations about fundamental science that explains the world, that's, that's a collective good. So we have to organize our laws and our, and our tools to make sure that everyone has access to that. So for those scholars and researchers who are listening to this who either aren't necessarily on board yet with open science or are still kind of feeling their way around there, could each of you give, I guess, what is one message you want to get out there to those individuals? Um, I guess I would just say that, um, you know, all knowledge is built off of the works of everyone else and the process of sharing is what generates new knowledge. And so um, I think that beyond this altruistic desire to accelerate um, the process of science or the process of discovery, um, I, I think that getting on board with certain movements, for example, preprinting is emerging in many different disciplines. Um, can have benefits to individual researchers in terms of increasing their visibility, getting additional feedback, finding collaborators. Um, and so I think while we need to be sensitive to the realities of working in these disciplines, there are off the benefits of opening up um, work is uh, definitely outweigh the the concerns. I would say that that the value of work, both as seen by the public and as seen by institutions, is increasingly, driven by how many people have access to it and, and interact with it, and that authors and scientists often have a great deal of leverage in working with the people who publish them. So and most authors want their work to be visible to everyone in the world. Um, they can just ask and make sure that the people who publish them make that possible. So for those people interested in the work that you're doing, let's find out how they can find out more. Jessica, we'll start with you. How, how can people keep up to date with the work that you're doing at Open Science? So you can definitely visit asapbio.org where we have a mailing list you can sign up for. You can also follow us on Twitter. That's at asapbio with an underscore afterwards. And Sam, what about and you? You can find our work at kfg.mit.edu. That's the work of the Knowledge Futures Group, my research team. And you can find us on Twitter at Knowledge Future. Jessica Polk and Sam Klein, thank you so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Information about the Knowledge Futures Group can be found at mitpress.mit.edu slash KFG. And information about the press in general can be found at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can follow the MIT Press on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2018, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.